0: I think I've told you before my love of everything that has to do with Christmas movies. I, uh, Growing up in the 70s and 80s, I think it played a large role in my life because TV kind of marked seasons of our lives. Those of us that grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, really the TV became the babysitter. It became your nighttime family gathering, whether that was good or bad. But you you got excited when it became Christmas season. You would get the TV guide and you would and look for your favorite show, TV Guide. I don't have to explain that to some of you. It was a paper book that had all the television stuff. But you would get the TV Guide, and a book you got at the house, and you would look and find when your shows were coming on, because we didn't have DVRs and those kind of things. So if you didn't catch it, the one time it came on, you missed it for the season. And so I always was in love with the Christmas season and Christmas movies. Now when I say Christmas movies, I'm not talking about the movies where the single working woman gets burned out and has to go back to her hometown and she finds out she's Santa Claus's daughter and all she has to save Christmas or she goes back and saves the local roller rink or ice rink or family inn or she goes back and finds her high school boyfriend is now a widower with a small child in need of a mother. So those are okay, okay? And and I'm see you're laughing cuz you watch those and that's okay <laughs> I'm talking about the traditional, like Miracle on 34th Street, and It's a Wonderful Life, and the Rankin Bass, Claymation, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and those traditional Christmas movies, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, Die Hard, what a great Christmas movie, um, but, but all of those traditional Christmas movies that you and I grew up with, and in the 80s, as I was in high school, there were a couple of new ones that came on the scene that kind of fit in their own category because while they're more recent they are classics now and that's Christmas Vacation um, which that became required viewing in our house and I can quote it from start to finish so my family hates to watch it with me Uh, but it became a classic and also a Christmas story. And A Christmas Story was the story based on Gene Shepherd's book about a family celebrating Christmas in the mid-50s in the upper Midwest, in the Rust Belt, and the, what it was like in the 50s. And it's nostalgic for those that walked it, but it's really a funny story about Ralphie, who's up here represented in his uh, wonderful Christmas gift in his pink outfit. Uh, it is about his desire to receive a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas. And all that goes with it. And that story is such a wonderful story with some great scenes that I have decided to use it as a launching point. Some scenes from that movie, A Christmas Story, to give us some context to look at the real Christmas story. To look at what really happened at Christmas and why it's important to us. Now, I've got a Christmas story jacket I was going to wear this morning. Uh, if you start falling asleep, it's a little quiet and peaceful. Um, but it's hot in here today and it's humid outside. And so, But I will wear this one of the days to compete with Sid's pants that he wears. Um, I do have a tie that goes with it. And so one of the days at Christmas, I'm going to wear this. So don't miss any of those days um, and make sure that you're here. But this morning I wanted to start out with one of the scenes that takes place in the movie A Christmas Story. And that is the scene where we are introduced to the term a dreaded triple dog dare. Now don't get confused with a double dare or the ultimate dare, which is the triple dare. This is the coup de grace of all dares. It is the triple dog dare. And we learned that term when Ralphie and his friend Schwartz try to convince or dare their friend Flick to stick his tongue on a frozen uh, flagpole. And uh, it introduced to the world the idea that it was possible to get frozen to a flagpole. And probably some of you in this room have tried that. And if you hadn't tried it, if you don't admit to that, then you could at least admit that when you see a frozen piece of metal, you think to yourself, I wonder if that works. Well, you see... Schwartz triple-dog dared Flick to stick his tongue on the flagpole. And one of the things you need to understand about a dare is that a dare is a spur-of-the-moment thought. A dare doesn't work if we have time to think it out. A dare doesn't work if there is planning involved, there is thought involved. A dare only works when it is sprung on you at the last minute, and you have to make a quick decision. That's why most dares lead to bad decision-making, because they happen in an instant, Many people think that the birth of Jesus was something like that. That it was just a cosmic convergence of events that happened to happen at a certain time in our timeline of the world. That somehow it was just a culmination of random events that all came together for us to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Have you ever thought about why Jesus was born when He was born? Many scholars and theologians believe he was born sometime between 4 BC and 4 AD. Have you ever thought about why that was? Why didn't God send Jesus earlier? Why didn't God send Jesus later? Why Why did he send him at the specific time that he did? Now, I can remember a college student at one of the college Christmas worship services we were having, one of the churches I was serving, he came up afterwards, he was a visitor, and he came up and said, man, Rusty, it's so cool that Jesus happened to be born at Christmas. I didn't have the heart to tell him that the whole name Christ Mass was because Jesus was born and we celebrate at Christmas. And we don't know if Jesus was born on December the 25th. We don't know the season. We can kind of put around the time and the solstice and some of the other scholars have come up with things. But it's not important for us to know the exact event as much as it is for us to know why. It happened when it happened. See, the Bible tells us it, it was not a random event. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a result of a dare. It didn't just happen that, that it was all part of a plan developed by God before the foundations of the world. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, that before God created the earth, He already had a plan to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem mankind. Well, why is that important for us? Why do we need to care when He came and why He came and how He came? Well, I want to read you a passage from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. To the area, to the region of Galatia, Paul wrote this letter. And and in it, in chapter 3 and 4, he's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the inheritance we have. What is important that we receive from Jesus when we receive Him in salvation. When we accept Him into our heart, what takes place. And Paul is explaining that in the middle of that teaching. He presents the core of the Christmas story. Now people say, oh, well, you only have the Christmas story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No, it's also presented in Corinthians. It's also presented in Galatians. It's also presented in Ephesians. And Paul lays out a principle that sometimes we just skip over when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I want you to see it this morning. I'm going to go back and read up in uh, chapter 3 because it's not a good place there where they broke down chapter 3 and 4. Paul's talking about our inheritance. Listen to chapter 3, verse 26. And you can follow along in your order. There's Bibles in the pews below you or in front of you if you want to follow along. But you can listen if you'd like. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter if you're Greek or Jew, man or woman, what background you have, slave or free, that when you accept Jesus Christ and His gift of salvation, you become an heir to the promise that God made Abraham. That you now become part of the chosen people of God, God's family. And then he goes on to explain more. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he may own the whole estate. For he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. He, he's explaining sin and the nature of sin that you and I, even though we were created by God, even though we were children of God, sin corrupted us and corrupted that relationship. Sin corrupted who we were in God, who we were created to be. And then he says this revolutionary phrase in verse 4 of chapter 4, "...but when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons." Because you are a son, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, and a spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but now a child of God. And since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. Now Paul slips in there a principle that is foundational to the Christmas story. You, You and I, sometimes we kind of skip by it. Theologians call it the doctrine of incarnation. The doctrine of incarnation, and that just simply means that God split time and space And became a man. That God himself became flesh and blood and dwelled among us. And you and I need to understand that that is so key to the understanding of our salvation that we can't skip by it. Because you see, without God becoming man, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no redemption. Without the manger, there is no cross. And so when we look at this baby in a manger, we need to understand that that is God in flesh. And that God just didn't do this by happenstance or by accident or because He was pushed into it and reacting to what was going on in the world. God had a definitive plan for such a time as that. Now think about some of the terms that He uses. He uses time had fully come. In the fullness of time. Now in time... In the Greek language, there's two words. There's chronos, which means a marked time. That's more of a watch, more of a keeping time. And then there's kairos. And kairos is more of a moment, a celebratory moment, an opportunity, a time of opportunity. And here, Paul uses the term chronos to say that it was in a very specific time that God sent Jesus A very specific time and place. When was it? He said in the fullness of time. When time had come fully. Now the word there for fully is the same word in the Greek that we use to describe a fruit that is ripe. A fruit that is ready to eat. It's also the same word in the Greek that they use to describe a woman that is about to give birth. She is ripe. She is about ready to go. And so what he is saying in this phrase, if you want to rephrase it, he said when the planning time was just right, When everything had been fulfilled, when time was perfect, God sent His Son. Now, why does it matter? Why does it matter when God sent His Son? And I've told you that God sees time apart from the way we see time. God transcends time. God sees creation and and rapture at the same moment. God sees your birth and your death at the same glance. Everything that's going to happen in your life, God sees at the same moment. And at the same moment that He is hearing this message and seeing us in church, He sees the birth of Christ. And God didn't just say, where's a good time? This time or this time. God had a plan from the foundation of the earth for a specific time. Why? Why 4 B.C.? Well, I want to share with you a couple of things about that time and why it was important. You see, God had a definitive time for Jesus Christ to be born. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't random. It symbolizes really for us and all of creation a a split, a moment, where everything before Jesus has been changed. That's why the term AD, which means Anno Domine. What does that mean? The year of our Lord. Everything from that moment in time when Jesus was born became the year of our Lord. Well, why was that time so important? Well, first of all, it was important culturally. The cultural atmosphere was perfect for Jesus to be born. About 300 years before Jesus was born, a Macedonian king, a Greek king by the name of Philip, had a son. And his son was named Alexander. We call him Alexander the Great. And in 12 years, Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. From Europe to India, Alexander had conquered it all. And as he conquered the world, he brought with him Greek thought, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and the Greek language. You see, because of Alexander conquering the known world, all of a sudden the Greek language, which is Koine Greek or Common Greek, became the second language of all of the conquered people. You learned to read Greek. If you dealt in commerce, if you dealt in travel, you had to learn the Greek language. And so all of a sudden, in an area that spoke many different languages, uh, from, from the Mediterranean to India, there were probably 300 languages. And all of a sudden, because of Alexander the Great, that area where the Jewish Holy Land was, where the Promised Land was, began to learn Greek. But not only just Greek language, Greek thought. Greek philosophy, all that began to get permeated through there. And around 280 B.C., after the exile, the Jewish followers who came out of the exile, some say under Ezra, after Nehemiah, they began to take the Scripture and compile it, the Old Testament, into one book. And that book was translated into the Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. You see, most of the people that went into exile, and we've been studying this on our Wednesday Night Bible study and history in the Bible, most of those who came out of the exile no longer spoke Hebrew. They no longer even read Hebrew. They began to, to speak Aramaic. And if they knew how to read and write, they began to read and write Greek. So all of a sudden you had this Old Testament, this new book of God's works that had been put together and put in Greek. When Jesus read the Old Testament he read it from the Koine Greek, the Septuagint. Now, they still in the synagogue, they still in the temple, used the Hebrew, but most of the people didn't speak Hebrew. And certainly they didn't read it. So, culturally, it was a perfect time as the world was being introduced to this monotheistic theology for Jesus to come. But not just culturally, also politically. By the time that Jesus was born, the Greeks had been on the wane and the Roman Empire had risen. And under the Roman Empire, they brought changes that the Greeks didn't bring. They developed a political system. They developed a road system that you've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Because no matter where they went, they made sure that you could move back and forth. And all of a sudden that allowed different cultures and different languages and different groups to be mixed together. This postal system they developed allowed for, for letters and cards and notices to go from one place to a far off place and laid the groundwork for Paul to be able to send his letters, to be able to have them spread throughout the known world. They began politically to understand that while they were conquerors, they were much like the Persians. The Romans didn't force everyone to worship Rome. They still allowed people to have their own culture and their own worship systems. They allowed the Jews to still have the temple. They allowed the Jews to still worship in these type of principles. Why do you think, have you ever wondered why Jesus was born in Bethlehem instead of Nazareth where his family was from? Because Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome, did what? He issued a decree throughout all the Roman Empire that every person should go back to the lands of their birth, or in the Jewish instance, to the land of their tribes, and be counted for a census. I don't think Caesar Augustus recognized that when he made that decree, he was helping Mary and Joseph fulfill an 800-year-old prophecy where Isaiah said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You see, God was using the the culture, God was using the politics of what was going on to lay the foundation for a perfect time for Jesus to be born. God had a plan, and it was right culturally, and it was right politically, but it was also right spiritually. You know the history of the Jewish people, most of us in this room? they would worship God and they would be devout in their worship and then they would begin to intermarry with other cultures. They would begin to bring these other thoughts and these other cultures in and God would allow them, because of their choices, to fall away. God would allow them to to get captured or to be taken over by other kingdoms. But after the Babylonian exile, when the temple is finally destroyed and they are all taken into captivity, it was during that captivity that their faith became strengthened. They were no longer interested in other cultures and other faiths. If you go and read about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was a fire within them to get back to what they understood to be God's call on their life. And so their faith grew strong. They developed a system of synagogues instead of the temple. They no longer had the temple, so they had to worship somewhere. So they developed a synagogue system, which was allowing people to go in their own community and get together and read the Word of God. A rabbi, a teacher would come that could read Hebrew and he would read to them from the Hebrew language and they would discuss stuff. This allowed the foundation, this set the foundation for what the church would become. Where did Jesus go when he taught in his ministry? He went to the synagogues. It allowed him an opportunity to go face-to-face and to share Jewish text comparing it to his life and what he was bringing to offer. It created the diaspora for 2000 years the jewish people lived in an area that was about 500 square miles by 500 square miles from egypt up to the what we call turkey today asia minor all the way over just a little bit past the persian empire babylon that's where the jewish faith existed But when they were pushed into exile, Jews that didn't go into exile, that were able to escape, went to all four corners of the world and began to introduce to people that had never heard Yahweh God this understanding that there is one God and His people. And so all of a sudden you had this faith getting spread out around the world, laying a foundation for Paul and the other apostles to begin to go and spread that same gospel, to take what had already been laid there and to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. The foundation was laid. The people, the Jewish people, were also spiritually hungry. During that time after the exile, you saw the rise of the political system in the Jewish state. You saw the Sadducees and the Pharisees that came up, and they began to implement things with the law that were never intended with the law. You see, the law was given so that we might encounter God, so we might know God. But all of a sudden, under the Sadducees and Pharisees, the law went from 10 commandments to 615 laws. And it went to a legalistic system. And instead of pointing them to God, they were just going through ritual. And so over that 300-year period where God didn't speak, there were no prophets, there was no new word from God, they were spiritually hungry. They were crying out. They were looking for something more. And also during the exile, they began to see the rise of this idea of a Messiah. Prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel began to talk about this one who God would send that would redeem all of man. One who would save you. And so they began during that period to look for someone who was going to come and redeem them. Now, their idea of Messiah, we know, was not what Jesus had in mind, but that still laid the groundwork for Him to come and fulfill. Do you understand? And I'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. There are over 800 passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus being the Messiah. When he came, why he came, how he came, what he did when he came. And that allowed, that framework allowed for Jesus to step in. But it wasn't just the right time spiritually for the Jews. It was the right time spiritually for the Gentiles. By the time Jesus was born, the Greek gods, the Roman gods had begun to be on the wane. Greek philosophy the, that they thought were so enlightened, all of a sudden began to ask questions that the Greek gods couldn't answer. They had their Greek gods and the Roman gods, and those of you that have studied that, know they switched the names, but basically had the same principle. It was a worship of sky and space and, and the earth and the things that they could identify. They put a God's name to them. But all of a sudden philosophers began to ask questions like, Why am I here? What is my purpose? And as they began to ask those questions, they recognized that the Greek gods didn't give them an answer. The Roman gods didn't give them an answer. Remember Paul at Mars Hill? As they were worshiping and praying to the unknown God. They were asking, What is my purpose? Why are we here? Because these gods are not giving us an answer. It was a fertile time for God to send salvation. Jesus' birth was no accident. It wasn't a dare, but it was perfect in God's timing. That answers the, the when. But what about the why? See, God's birth through Jesus Christ was not just a definitive act. It was also a determined act. That means it had a purpose. It wasn't just part of a plan, but it said there in verse 4, God sent His Son. The word for sent there is interpreted as someone dispatched for a specific task. You could say God sent His Son on a mission. It's not a new understanding. There's over 25 verses in the New Testament that talk about God sending His Son. John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the Bible, says what? God sent His Son. He didn't just send Him to come to earth because that was the time and that was the place. He sent Him for a specific purpose. And you need to recognize, and it's so hard for us to wrap our head around it, that God had a definitive plan. Do you understand that there was never a time in all of known time before eternity... Eternity passed that God did not have a plan where He sent Jesus Christ to come to redeem mankind. It has always been God's plan. It always will be God's plan. There's not a second plan. There's not a third plan. There's not an optional plan. God had one plan and one plan only. And it was that His Son was sent for a specific purpose. Well, what was that purpose? He said "The birth of, he, said he would send His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does that mean? That's the idea of incarnation again. We need to recognize that the reason God sent His Son in human flesh is because the only way mankind could be redeemed was for a sinless man to pay the price. And there's no such thing as a sinless man found in you and I. See, God just couldn't send anybody. John the Baptist just couldn't step up. The closest that we had to perfection, it would not be enough. It needed to be someone who walked in our shoes, who faced the temptations that we faced, who struggled with the struggles that we struggled with, but yet didn't give in, that would be willing to become a perfect sacrifice. to God send His Son at a distinct time for a distinct purpose. He sent Him so you and I might be redeemed. It's so important that we understand that God was all man and all God. Now, I don't understand how to explain that. Somebody says, show me how that works. I don't know. I'm not God. But that baby in a manger was not some super spiritual infant. It was a baby. Flesh and blood. It cried. Had dirty diapers. Went through the terrible twos was a teenager. Jesus was a teenager. He struggled with all the struggles that you struggle with. He struggled with all of the difficulties that you struggle with. He hurt. Probably got his feelings hurt by friends. Had pain. Had, had cuts and bruises. He went crying to his mother. Probably got discouraged when he couldn't do all the things that his dad was asking him to do in the carpenter shop. Probably had dreams and aspirations. Talked with his friends about life. He was all human because any other way would not work. He had to be. Jesus Christ became fully man because that was the only way he could become our redemption. That baby in the manger, when you think about it, he was a man. He was a human. I know we super spiritualize it sometimes. We'd like to think that, that Jesus was this, this perfect kid. Perfect does not equate sinless. Jesus was sinless, but he wasn't perfect because he was human. He had struggles. He had all the things that we have. He just didn't give in to temptation. Probably that manger, I want you to think about it this week, maybe next week. That baby in your manger, he probably had a dirty diaper right there. Probably be good if we changed our manger scenes around and maybe put some shepherds over here on the side going to get something to clean his diaper. Because they were in there with animals and he was a baby. Understand, without him being a human, there is no salvation. He struggled. He faced pain. He faced difficulty. Jesus' birth was not an accident. It was defined, determined deliberately. And last thing, it was distinct. It had a purpose. God didn't just send His Son to mankind. He sent His Son to, what does He say in verse 5? To redeem us. To bring worth back to what sin had rendered worthless. See, the whole purpose for God sending His Son was that you and I might be saved. It wasn't so that we could sing Christmas songs and celebrate Christmas the way we do it. It wasn't so you and I could feel better about ourselves or so you and I could could have answers to all the things of life. He sent Him to save us. And we hear that word redemption a whole lot in the church and we become numb to it because we just miss... That is probably one of the most miraculous terms you and I can ever hear. Redemption. To take that which was worthless and give it worth. Jesus' birth was God's way of buying us back and the control and the power of sin. But He didn't just come and redeem us, He says in verse 5. He also came to make us joint heirs with Christ. So he didn't just come to wipe the slate clean. He didn't just come to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to save you and I'm going to forgive you and I'm wiping the slate clean. He came so that you and I could all of a sudden have access to the Father. You know, in Jesus' day, kings and emperors, the only people who had unfettered access to the king were his children. Everybody else had to go through somebody. Everybody else had to go and, and see somebody. I need to see the king. Well, you've got to make an appointment. You've got the only people who could just walk in to the king's throne room or his bedroom were his kids. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus came at a specific time for a specific purpose and with a specific reason in mind so that you and I could not only be saved from sin and the power of sin so that we could be redeemed but so that you and I could now have unfettered access to the Father. You see when you accept Jesus Christ God's no longer just a holy and righteous God. A holy and righteous creator, he is now Abba Father what paul says that word abba if you've ever been to israel the first time i went to the holy land and heard kids calling out abba it's daddy changed my whole perspective on this passage running around saying abba 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 daddy 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 i thought i have that ability now That when I come before the Father, He's not just somewhere out there. He's he's not the man upstairs. He's not over there on a throne room someplace far away in the clouds. He is now right there where I am. And I have the ability to say, Daddy, Daddy, I'm lonely. Daddy, I hurt. Daddy, I don't understand this. And all of that was made possible by a baby being born in a manger. See, what you and I need to recognize this morning is that God had a plan. And you're a part of it. You're a part of it. It wasn't just the perfect time and the perfect way and the perfect place. It was done so that you and I, each one of us in this room, could be a part of His plan. Redeemed. Have access. When we celebrate Christmas this year, let's remember it's not some random event. It's not, a, it's not a triple dog dare, some cosmic conversion. It was defined and determined and deliberate, and it changed history. And it can also change our lives if we'll let it. And, and please hear me. Just as Christ's coming that first time was very planned, His coming a second time will be just as planned there is going to come a time in the fullness of time when Jesus Christ will come back. And He'll come back for those who are His. For those who have access to the Father. For those who have been redeemed. The question for you and I this morning is will we be as ready that time as they were the first time? Because you see that baby born in a manger there's only a handful of people that were ready a whole religious system missed it. For 33 years, he taught and he lived out the principles that God sent him to do. And people walked up to him and walked away, never understanding that they had an opportunity to be a part of God's plan. You know, in the Christmas story, that whole triple dog dare didn't work out so well for Flick. If you remember in the story, he ended up stuck and they couldn't get him off and the teacher came out and sent everybody back. They called the fire department. The fire department came and they had to eventually just jerk his tongue off of that flagpole. Now, I'll admit to you, I've tried it, okay? Um, <laughs> I, you don't have to admit because I thought it really can't happen. It wasn't a flagpole. It was at a ski resort and it was a ski pole that was left out and I thought Re- it really all you got to do is just pull it off. No. There is some kind of chemical thing that takes place <laughs> when your wet tongue hits a frozen metal surface. It doesn't come off. I was walking around with a ski pole sideways, stuck to my tongue. I had to look like I was doing it on purpose, right? Carrying it in my mouth. It wouldn't come off. I had to get water and begin to pour it, and even that didn't get in Rip it off. Said, yeah, it's not, not pain. It's not fun. You see, that moment for Flick and for Ralphie and for Swartz became a Kairos moment. Remember a Kairos moment? A moment in time, an opportunity in time? Not a Chronos moment. See, Jesus' birth was Chronos. It was planned. It was marked. But the Bible says there are moments in your life and my life that are Kairos moments. Moments to remember, moments of opportunity. And Paul writes in Romans 13, 11, For the hour has come for you to wake up for your slumber, because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. He's talking about a kairos moment, about an opportunity, about making a decision. Right now there is a moment of opportunity for you. What did Jesus' birth mean to you? What did God's plan mean to you? Did it change your life? Did it, did it totally take what was old and make it new? Did it, did it all of a sudden bring worth where you thought worth could be found in things and stuff and relationships? And all of a sudden you recognize that none of those things could fill that hole inside of you, but only Jesus Christ. Because according to what Paul says here in Romans, we don't get many kairos moments where the voice of God speaks into our head. For some of you this morning, That moment is now. Will you decide? Will you listen? Will you recognize God has a plan for you? Has a purpose for you? And it starts by you understanding and recognizing He wants to come into your heart and save you. Kairos moment. Let's pray.